Hey everyone, Happy New Year. Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave, and this is the 2018 Highlight Reel. 2018 was a great year for this podcast, and we really started off with a bang, interviewing big-name staff members at Santa Clara like Father Eng, Business School Dean Karen Beck-Dudley, and Athletic Director Renee Bumgarner, whom you'll be hearing from later in this episode. In terms of the most popular episodes of the year, the most listened to was Athletic Director Renee Bumgarner with 164 listens, followed by Father Eng and Tour Guide Rachel Robles in third place. I've really been missing doing the interviews since all but one that you've heard this year happened in the first uh, basically five months of the year because of uh, summer and then study abroad. So I will be diving back into interviews when I return to campus and I have some big new updates in the works. These first 40 or so episodes have been a great step for the podcast, but I think that we can reach a lot more people, uh, students, parents, alumni, and I'll be sharing some of my plans to do so soon. So stay tuned. What I wanted to do in this episode was compile some of my favorite moments and uh, conversations and give them to you all in one place. Re-listening to these earlier episodes reminded me of some of the great stories that guests shared this year, and I think you'll really enjoy this selection of 16 or 17 of my favorite quotes, stories, and conversations of the year. So yeah, enjoy your new year and stay tuned for updates coming soon. We're going to start out with the first interview of 2018, which was with psychology professor Dr. Thomas Plant, who has researched all sorts of topics from happiness, mindfulness, spirituality, ethics, and he's most well known for his journalistic role in uncovering the sexual abuse scandals of priests in the Catholic Church. And he presented at many major conferences and was interviewed by many major news outlets on his research on that topic. And so this is my question for him. Are there any common misconceptions that students have about either ethics or happiness or living a virtuous life that you that you come across a lot? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest um, misperception or whatever, and part of it is um, because of it's our culture and part of it's all the books that are out there about happiness. What does it take to be happy? I want to be happy. And there's all these books about that are focused on looking at the self, you know, if I, uh, uh, if I, how can I do more self-improvement for happiness, or can I meditate my way to happiness, or can I do all sorts of things for, ha- you know, for my personal happiness? And I think that's a a, a, a rabbit hole. It it, 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 the research really ultimately doesn't support that. Mm-hmm. What we really know is that the happiness research is that you know it's not about you. It's about us. It's about others. And so happiness is not found by, you know, the, the big prestigious job, uh, having money come out of your ears, you know, fame and fortune. It really doesn't butter the biscuit. Um, but rather, um, it, uh, it, it has something to do with um, feeling um, part of something greater than yourself, um, being part of a community, uh, helping other people. Uh, it has to do with all these other things, reasonable expectations, and so, so many, so often, Americans just and young people just are trying to um, capture happiness when uh, they're down the wrong path. 
and the, some of these books don't help. Uh, one book that does help, I think, that's right off the top of my head, it's a great read. It's by a British journalist called America the Anxious. Mm-hmm. And it's a terrific book that addresses this, and it's a very engaging, and she's funny, too. It's mm-hmm. a great book. And she's local. She's in Berkeley now. Mm-hmm. It's, um, but I think that's a good, um, easy-to-read uh, book that can give you a better feel for how America's gone kind of nutty for mm-hmm. happiness mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so um, they, they, I think that's the biggest misperception out there everybody wants to be happy but they're, they're following the wrong path next up is a snippet from my interview with business school dean Karen Beck Dudley and I had some questions about the rising cost of higher education and what skills she wants graduates to walk away with. And so in the past several years with the rising costs of higher education, um, there have been more stories of entrepreneurs who kind of skip college and go straight into yeah. the working world to start a company which saves uh, sometimes a lot of money, right? Um, and especially in, in business education as compared to maybe law or medicine, there's a, a stronger argument for the value of real world experience. Mm-hmm. So why should a student who's maybe on the fence about the time and money commitment of a business education choose to stay in school versus just uh, start a company? I think that's actually a really, really good question and one I think a lot about because it actually is of no value if we don't provide value to the student, (laughs) Uh, if you can learn it all on your own. And so what I think Santa Clara does and probably does really, really well is our liberal arts education, which doesn't necessarily train you for today's job, although we hope we do but hopefully training you for the job five to ten years out. And that really comes from reflection and having a broad body of knowledge that you can draw upon and flat out a network. Mm-hmm. One of the things universities give you is a network of people who do like things and like-minded, and you'll rely on that network forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so our ability to tap into that network, to give you that liberal arts education, to top it with high-quality business education, uh, I think is, is why students should stay in school and why they really want to stay at, at Santa Clara. We have an incredible graduation rate and retention rate, and I think students and their parents understand the value of that. Mm-hmm. What are a couple skills or mindsets that you hope graduates walk away with or learn throughout their time in business school here? I hope that they're intellectually inquisitive because they never know what they're going to see. And so I actually hope, I know that it's that they read a lot and that they read pretty widely. Uh, One of the things that's really helped me in my meeting with alumni is that I actually can talk with almost on almost any subject at a pretty base level Mm -hmm. because I watch sports, I understand classical music, I understand art, I understand the humanities, I understand a lot of business, I read in technology areas. And so there's not very many topics that would come up in Uh, that I wouldn't at least be able to hold a conversation in. And I hope students gain that from a university setting, that reading broadly is really, really important, Mm. Uh, as well as being open to change. Next up, a little piece of my interview with university president Father Ang. What would you say are the most challenging and rewarding parts of your job? Uh, The most challenging parts of the job is, is always around planning, uh, planning so that we can manage our budget and, and stay in the black. Uh, challenging so that we can handle personnel issues. 
in terms of job performance are people you know when when uh, there are difficulties around that those are really challenging issues that come up from the university like in terms of uh, the, the racial issue the racial bias in, incidents on campus those are just come out of the blue you know and so you never know when something's going to come up like that which means dropping everything and paying attention to this issue at the time which impacts a schedule like this to say, oops, I've got to attend to this. So the challenging part is um, planning on developing structures to make it possible to deal with these things. So example, there's a proposal that we have a bias incidents response team so that when issues do come up, there's a group that can meet immediately, assess it, consult, and then give me advice. Mm -hmm. um, with social media, the need for that is so much greater because when I was first president starting 10 years ago, we didn't have the degree of social media now. And so now everything is instantaneous and universities are not instantaneous institutions. I mean, there's so many people and so many programs and so many levels of activity. It's very hard in the face of social media to keep up with that. Mm -hmm. So we've had to adapt and that's why we're looking at that. So th that's the challenging part. A rewarding part is for me, is either hearing about a faculty success for a grant or a publication, a lecture. Uh, rewarding for me is when students are recognized. My conversations with individual students are probably the most rewarding experiences I have because all of us, faculty, staff, administrators, we're here because of students, mm -hmm. you, okay? Mm -hmm. And so when, when it's a chance to talk with students, it makes all the difference in the world in terms of how my day is going. Mm -hmm. You know, because I can understand what a student's facing or what a student has accomplished. Mm -hmm. We get a Rhodes Scholar. That's like that. That's like winning the you know an Oscar. Uh, but uh, anytime we have successes like that, it's important. Mm -hmm. Here's child studies professor Brett Solomon. I feel like mass incarceration and racial disparities are such gigantic issues that yeah. sometimes it can be overwhelming. Some like sometimes when thinking about this type of problem it's it's so overwhelming yeah. that we just want to do nothing. Right. So what, it gets too much. So you're just Yeah, so what so what so what would you tell a student who is maybe feeling like they didn't really have any power to right. change any of this? Right. I would say get to know individuals who are impacted by the problem. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about school to prison pipeline, we're talking about get to know and understand the experiences of the kids who are impacted, the kids who are kicked out of school. What is that about? Um, and oftentimes, you know, we see a behavior in a classroom and it's the behavior that we respond to. So if it's you're tardy or you're, and I'm going to answer your question, mm -hmm. but there's, there's a person and an experience behind the behavior. So if we take a step back and look at factors contributing to why are you late or why are you falling asleep in class or why are you disrupted? Why are you disrupting? And you often start to see, oh, this kid is caring for other siblings because a parent is in jail or another parent is on drugs or this kid doesn't have a quiet place to study so they have to go to a certain place at nighttime and travel back and they're tired so it's so getting back to your question it's about understanding 
factors that contribute to um, the overall problem. If it's about, you know, DACA, which is a big issue right now, and, and um, immigration, you know, get to know the experiences. And so once you can understand and empathize, you can't pretend that you don't know. So Maya Angelou has a quote that says, when you know better, you do better. And you can't pretend that you don't know it now that you know it. So what are you going to do? And I always pose that to my students. I'm like, now you know this. Like, mm-hmm. it's out there. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. What, what change are you going to affect? Next up, Chief Information Officer Bob Owen. If I were right now to walk into the library and just ask someone, uh, who's Bob Owen, they might say, oh, he's the technology guy who sends funny emails when the internet goes out. Um, And so last year, specifically, you sent an email. uh, It was titled, the subject line was Waiting for Godot, the search for the Holy Grail and email for life. Um, And you haven't been shy about throwing jabs at AT AT&T or Uh -uh. Cisco or other other companies in your campus-wide emails. So I want to know, what is your philosophy for sending these emails, and how do you kind of balance the getting the information out and the humor parts of sure. it? Sure. So, well, the, when I came here and started talking to folks, one of the things I heard loud and clear is that there was a desire for much more communication. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? And so, I mean, come on, who wants to read an email from the CIO? Let's get real. Uh-huh. You know, you guys have so many other things going on in your mm-hmm. lives. Um, administrators, faculty, staff, they've got all, their, their lives are full. So, you know, and, but I have to communicate some things mm-hmm. because what we, technology touches every part of this organization. There's no part that is untouched. So if we do something big, there's a very good chance you're going to feel it somehow, some way. So I got to communicate that, but I got to get it out there in a way so that you really will read it. And so, I mean, when I first got here, if you look at my first emails out mm-hmm. to the campus community, they're pretty formal and straight up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was fine. But, you know, again, it was like, man, how am I going to get folks to read it? So I don't know. I just decided, well, you read the, the formal message. And I thought, what's then, 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 you know, people might stop me and say, well, you know, just give me the quick lowdown. And mm-hmm. so I thought, well, it's like an FAQ section, you know, basically let's just cut to the chase. What are the main questions that people want to know? Because your time is valuable. So let me just get down to it in a, in a colloquial way, a conversational way. And so that's that's what I started. That's why I started doing that, hoping that people would read the other part. And then the humor just, <laughs> the humor, I don't know. It just kind of crept in. I just decided, you know, what the heck? I'm just going to go uh-huh. for it, you know? And so... And I'll tell you what, um, people people actually read my emails, um, and I know this because they they reply to them. <laughs> Some of the yeah. things that I've written, you know, from time to time, yeah. And so what you mentioned about you know taking jabs at AT and T or Cisco, that I refuse to accept anything less than the best service from our vendors. Um, you know, I don't really care. Sometimes it, it's a lot of vendors. They look at education as, oh, we're, we're a bunch of warm fuzzies and you can do anything to us. We just don't really care. Mm-hmm. Forget it. Um, I want, and I, this is my, I call it my vendor spiel. Mm-hmm. And I get them in here, AT&T, IBM, Cisco, Apple, they all hear the same thing. I, I'm really easy to get along with. I expect excellent service all the time. 
If I get it, I'll sing your praises to high heaven. If I don't, I'm going to go right up the chain till I get that service. And nobody's perfect. So if you make a mistake, you raise your hand, you say, okay, we screwed up. We learned from it. We learned from it. We won't do it again. And, but, but that's honestly my expectation. So a lot of times where you guys sit, if something all of a sudden isn't working, like when the phones went down for all that period of time, um, so I've got a really great staff, and uh, we're a really good group of professionals. So we've done everything we can, and we do everything we can in those situations we did. And still, you know, AT&T were the ones that screwed up. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not going to cover for AT&T. Mm -hmm. Forget it. Or mm -hmm. Cisco. I mean, Cisco's a great company. Mm -hmm. We use them for our network. It's wonderful equipment. It's fantastic technology. Mm -hmm. But when you screw up, I, again, I, you screw up, and um, you know we. As long as you try to work with us, that's great. But at, yeah, AT and T is <laughs> AT and T is a four letter word to me. Uh, mm -hmm. So they they leave a lot to be desired. They're better than they were. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so that's kind of. Mm -hmm. I just I wanted to make sure you guys were reading mm -hmm. my emails and getting the most important information and. I figured a conversational approach with some humor was probably my best bet. Next, athletic director Renee Baumgartner. I'll start with a little intro. So you started at, at Oregon, a huge school known nationally for their athletics, finishing um, top nationally in many different programs um, and I've I've been up there I've seen the facilities that it's pretty it's pretty incredible and and then at, at, at Santa Clara we're you know the student bodies are a little over 5,000 um, and we don't we, we, we don't have the football team but um, w within our other teams I guess there's not there's not that national recognition so how important is winning and if winning isn't the only thing that matters then how do you determine success? Well, starting in Oregon, um, we didn't win. You couldn't pay mm -hmm. people to go to football games. And so we put together a plan and believed in that plan. And that's really what I'm trying to do at Santa Clara. So we put a plan together and get the belief and the courage to be able to do it. I truly believe we can rise up and be competitive in all of our sports. You know, we only have eight sports that are fully funded with the maximum amount of scholarships. Of similar to Oregon when I started there. And so it's just going to take time. It's going to take belief. It's going to take energy. It's going to take courage. And with all of that in a component, getting people to believe that we can do this in time, Santa Clara will be successful in the, in athletics. And I truly believe that, or I wouldn't be sitting here today. Hmm. Mm -hmm. For, for, I guess, students that are, that are in the program now that might not be around to see that time like what would you tell that student or why should they s still participate I guess or give their their full effort if it might not translate into those wins well I think that um, it's really interesting that um, student athletes come to Santa Clara one for an incredible education two because Silicon Valley what a beautiful campus but three they want to compete at the highest level they truly want to go win conference and national championships and we're kidding ourselves if these student athletes don't come to Santa Clara with that philosophy so um, we are just putting the pieces in place to give them the opportunity to be able to do that next 2018 graduate Harshi Mogalapali 
who was the student director of SCAP, which is Santa Clara's volunteering student organization. Were there any experiences you had maybe your first couple years that made you know, like, this is something I definitely want to stick with through my whole time at college? Mm-hmm. Um, actually, my first gap experience was okay. what made me stick <laughs> with it. Uh, so the scholarship that I was a part of, um, they had, um, that I am a part of, they had a, a day of service where you know they just took a group of us and we went to julian street in which one of my all-time favorite scat programs um and so i don't know if you know what that is it's a transition home um in san jose um or transition shelter and so uh we go we make breakfast and we serve it and we eat with the residents there um which was really fun and i remember sitting there and the leader of that program for that year was sitting at the same table that i was and one of the residents was like, this breakfast is so delicious. And her name her name was Julia. I hope she doesn't mind me saying this. But anyways, um, it was Julia. And um, they looked at her and they're like, Julia, thank you so much for coming every Saturday and making this breakfast for us. And it was like, okay, yeah, that, that's sweet. And then I realized that Julia wakes up at 5 a.m. every Saturday to go to Julian Street Inn and make breakfast. And I realized that those were the people that I wanted to hang out with. I wanted to be in that group of people that woke up at 5 a.m. on Saturdays to make breakfast, you know? And so that's when I decided that, like, SCAP would be where I found my people. Um, it sounds like – it sounded like something that really spoke to me. I love the way she spent her time, and I love um, the intention she put into her schedule. And so that's how I knew that I really wanted to be in SCAP. Now we'll hear from Kieran Freeman, a 2018 graduate and art student. I know you've gone on several immersion trips and mm-hmm. been a leader on some of those. And so I'm kind of curious about what you see as the intersection between art and social justice and how those two things kind of link together and what experiences you've had that have allowed you to like see that link. Yeah, definitely. I think that's kind of like the buzzword on my resume, the intersection of art and social justice. That's what I'm passionate about. That's what I want to keep exploring. Uh, those were like the things that I, I, I came to Santa Clara be, because of those things. I saw um, a real commitment to the the type of, the types of way I was talking about social justice in high school, going to a Jesuit high school, was how they were talking about them here as well. So that's something that I knew that I wanted. And then coming here, I knew that I wanted to study art and I wanted to continue those passions and those explorations of issues relating to justice. And I've just been able to do that in really amazing ways. Uh, Getting involved with immersions early on, I went on a, a spring break immersion my freshman year to San Jose, which was really local and great. And then I um, had the opportunity to lead an immersion as a sophomore to the Arizona border. Uh, And immigration issues are something that I'm fascinated with. Um, I come from an immigrant family myself. My dad is from Ireland, and I deal with that a lot in my own artistic practice, Um, work relating to him and his experience or my own experiences as being his son um, and what it means to be in the Irish diaspora. A lot of these different questions are things I ask in my work, and I think I started learning about learning to ask those questions by being in these circles that were talking about social justice. So we, we went to the Arizona border, we were able to meet with migrants and, and hear their experiences and, and see the differences, and in my opinion, the double standards of what it means to be a white immigrant in this country versus an immigrant of color. So I started getting involved with those, and then this past year I led a, an immersion to Ecuador over winter break, which was really cool because it was my first international immersion, uh, seeing how people live outside of this country. And then... 
it was that that intersection thing that I spent last summer doing as a Gene Donovan fellow. Um, I got an internship with Commonweal Magazine in New York City, and they gave me the opportunity to just walk around New York City to just spend the summer there, really looking at the intersection of art and social justice. So how in the art world's capital in New York City do people talk about art, and how does that relate to social justice? And I think the first place I went was uh, the Sean Kelly Gallery on 10th Avenue, and um, I got to see a Kahinda Wiley show. Uh, and it was really great because Kahinda Wiley is probably the foremost uh, black painter at the moment. He paints figurative, uh, figurative work that kind of calls into question the, art, the canon of art history, placing black figures at the center of it, where for most of Western art's history, they've either been absent or they've been depicted negatively. So it was really great to be able to go to that show. Uh, and then what really like made that experience just set the tone for my entire summer was being there with um, a group of students from the Bronx Charter School uh, for the Arts. So these were young black children that were there seeing work by a black artist in, in, in a top tier gallery, a blue chip gallery. And all of the paintings were depicting black artists. So there was a painting of Carrie Mae Weems, there was a painting of Carrie James Marshall, and all these really inspiring figures. And, and for me being there, I got to see the way that art and social justice connect, that Kahinda Wiley really breaking some barriers for himself while also paying homage to other black artists who had broken barriers was creating a new environment for for children and for the future and being able to witness that through their eyes being in the gallery space with them and it was all by coincidence it really just like opened that up for me and it was a really exciting moment next up the technology ethics director of the markula center for applied ethics brian green do you think with both artificial intelligence and then maybe bringing in like environmental ethics as well. Do you think that the future world that you're kind of spending time thinking about and studying and wondering about is going to be better than our current world? Uh, so that's a good question. I, I think that what we're doing is we're creating a world that's more volatile. In other words, there's more, more opportunities and much more risks at the same time. This is something that I think we've been able to see ever since um, globalization and technology have really, you know, taken off over and, and all, and all driven, driven by science and technology have been, you know, maybe for the last hundred years or so, maybe 150 or 200 years, even, um, that we used to be a world where there were little groups of people in different places and they all kind of did their own thing separately from each other. But now we're all becoming one big planet together. And by doing that, we become much more powerful and therefore much more capable of doing really big good things and also really big bad things. Um, and of course, uh, the Cold War and all the nuclear weapons that were developed back then are kind of a prime example of how that's possible. And the fact that there are you know, still thousands and thousands of them around uh, nuclear weapons um, that they haven't been gotten rid of. And then we're adding to that inventory in terms of AI can be dangerous and robotics can be dangerous and synthetic biology can be dangerous and nanotechnology. And so you can keep adding these dangerous things to your list. All of them can provide a benefit, but all of them also have a risk along with them. Mm -hmm. So, and it really depends. Um, a lot of these technologies are very dual-use technologies, which means you can use them for something good or for something bad. Mm -hmm. So uh, AI is kind of a prime example of it, right? It's like human intelligence, guess what? We can use human intelligence for good things or for bad things. And if we're taking that human intelligence and then we're putting it into an external product 
then that external product is then imbued with its own, you know, type of intelligence, which is either going to do good things or bad things. It's going to, it's, it can be, uh, it's a dual use. So the question is, how do we, is there a way that we can channel it towards the good uses and away from the bad uses? And that requires, guess what? Functioning political systems, you know, a culture where people can agree on things and talk to each other and have civil discourse and, and all sorts of, uh, Things like that, which which hopefully we would be able to do, but which unfortunately right now we're in a, a kind of a state where we're having more difficulty having having good discussions on those things. Next up, 2018 graduate and student tour guide and APB director Rachel Robles. I'm sure people have asked you a lot of questions in your years as an ambassador. I'm wondering, are there any kind of like funny or strange things that like people have asked you or questions that you haven't <laughs> been able to answer? Um, kind of. Uh, people have better stories than me, but one was like a dad was really upset that like if you were in a residence hall like Sobrato or Graham where you have your own bathroom, that the school didn't provide toilet paper for you. He was like really upset about that. <laughs> I was like, I don't know how to help you, sir. And like in my head, I was like, if you are coming to a school like Santa Clara and can either afford the tuition, the high price tag of tuition, or receiving a generous scholarship that makes that possible, like, I'm pretty sure you can afford toilet paper <laughs> in my head. And I was like, yeah, like, that's the price you pay of having your own bathroom. Like, if your student really doesn't want to get toilet paper, like, they can live in Dunn or Swig where those bathrooms get. So I was like, there's the pros and cons of having your own bathroom. Um, and then there was this other time... <laughs> This kid was hilarious. There was it was a relatively small group, but um, I was actually shadowing it, and another ambassador was giving the tour. But at the mission, where she kind of talks about you know Jesuit values and how religion, quote unquote, takes a pl- or serves a purpose on Santa Clara's campus. And then after every stop, we always ask if people have questions. So she goes, so is that, and she goes, that's it. Um, does anyone have any questions about religion? And this kid goes, I think we all have questions about religion. <laughs> and I go, oh my God, that was the best thing ever. And he's just like, I think we all have questions about religion. I was like, this kid knows what's up, um, which was really funny. And uh-huh. I was like, yeah. yeah, I was like, you'll do, uh, well, I was like, you'll do maybe well in college. The sass was pretty funny, but yeah. That's funny. Next, Professor Michelle Stecker, who teaches social entrepreneurship. Yeah, you mentioned the idea of preparing for a job that doesn't exist yet. So I'm wondering if we totally got rid of all the constructs of education and junior high and high school and college, like what would you want to put into place if you just had a clean slate with education, whether that's maybe in the junior high, high school, or college range? Like, what's what would be some notable differences in your self-created system versus the way things are now to better prepare people for jobs that don't exist yet? Well, it's that's a mind-blowing question, but I've actually been giving it a lot of thought. Um, we know that one of the big reasons why people are in poverty is they don't have access to the skills, knowledge, competencies that they need be successful. I would like to live in a world where education is democratized, where everyone has access to the same kinds of skills, knowledge, competencies, and it shouldn't be based on being born in the right country or being born, you know, in an affluent family. Um, I'm hoping that we can uh, start uh, 
teaching kids, you know, whether it's little kids, you know, college students and lifelong learners, because you're going to have to learn the rest of your life. Um, we're all lifelong learners in this, uh, where we can access um, knowledge in a way using technology that, you know, we can work in teams still, even with the technology, because I think that human interaction is super important. Do project-based learning. Um, we shouldn't be doing rote memorization anymore. There are a few things we really do need to know, but everything else is on your phone. And we need to look at what what is the canon of knowledge now. As a history professor, uh, you know, I used to make all my students memorize all this stuff, mm-hmm. and it's at the tip of their fingers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sure, I like they need to not be ignorant. They need to know, you know, basic basic dates, but. Uh, it's more important to learn critical thinking skills, um, teamwork skills, leadership skills, um, innovation skills, the ability to have that creative confidence, mm-hmm. self-efficacy. Those are the kinds of things that's, that students need to, um, in order to be lifelong learners. And we're going to see an, an incredible revolution. Education is going to change so dramatically mm-hmm. the next five, ten years, it's going to be crazy. We're going to see a lot of bricks-and-mortar schools go under, colleges mm-hmm. and universities. They um, are not sustainable. They're business models. And, you know, I just, I'm, my dream, I hope that we can use this time of incredible change for positive and we can just, we can reach more students. Hmm. And so I think it's a, a, a tremendous time of opportunity rather than mm-hmm. negative. Let's break down these silos. Let's get rid of it. Let's let's start from scratch. And, um, you know, I know professors will hate me for this, but I don't believe in tenure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think professors should be able to teach in two or three fields. Mm-hmm. And we need to be teaching together. We need to be, you know, long-term contracts and things like that. But we need to keep on um, adapting and learning ourselves as professors in order to stay relevant mm-hmm. and be able to facilitate the education that the students need. And, you know, I, if, if we're just lecturing at students to, for all the class time, mm-hmm. you know, you can get that online. Mm-hmm. So it's when we bring people together in a classroom environment, maybe it's going to be a virtual reality environment, mm-hmm. um, we, we still need that interaction in teams. Mm-hmm. But it's going to look very different mm-hmm. than what it is today. And I think, it's, I think it's really exciting. I know it's scary, but mm-hmm. I think it's exciting. Next, University Admissions Dean Eva Blanco Macias. But I know just being going through the college admission process just three or so years ago, the, the time leading up to that of writing essays and applying can mm-hmm. really be stressful, and especially sure. as you know, more and more students apply to more and more universities and um, everyone's trying to do as many extracurriculars as they can and get the best GPA. So is all that is all that stress warranted from students? Like how should a high school student yeah. be thinking about that yeah. process? Like, yeah, I, I, we are aware of that. Um, and certainly our interest isn't to add more stress to students. What I'd like to tell students is to really be authentic about the application process. I also encourage students to, you know, explore, to take some risks, to try things. Um, I think that we have gotten into this conversation about going to college and how early do you start doing that. 
And the fact that that begins very early does begin to create, I think, stress for students very early on and feel that they have to be a perfect student, um, however that's defined to them. And the reality is, is that when it comes to reading an application and making decision about a class, a class isn't uniform, right? It's, it's all variations of students coming from different parts of the country, different parts of the world, different experiences, different socioeconomics, different challenges, different schools. And it's all that variety that when we enroll a class, um, really makes that class special, right? Because it's all those variations that we hope then comes to this campus and students get to learn and have their learning experience further enhanced by these experiences and variations that students come with. Here's Dean Koo from the Career Center. What did you think you wanted to do for a job when you were in college? When I was in college, I thought I wanted to work with people in some capacity, I wasn't sure how. And I thought the best path forward was to pursue social work. So I um, got into a couple masters in social work programs at USC and then Columbia University and uh, actually took time off. I deferred to actually do some social work to see if I really wanted to do it. And it didn't work out. Uh, I think it was just the, the wrong population at the time. And through the course of life, um, started working at Starbucks, who at the time literally had in the Bay Area one or two stores. Um, I really enjoyed what I was doing and very quickly had a chance to you know, manage stores and, and train people. And through the course of life, it kind of took me in different directions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what did you uh, continue to do with, with Starbucks after the first couple of years? Yeah, so I mean, I really enjoyed the people. The company is growing very quickly. Loved the fact that they really focused on employees, making sure that people were happy, uh, had a balanced life. So it really spoke to me. Um, I knew I didn't really want to do retail operations for the rest of my life. So I ended up getting an MBA. Um, but through the process, I really built up some strong relationships with people in the company that became uh, ultimately executives. And they provided an opportunity for me to go back to school um, worked on projects while I was getting my MBA, interned there over the summer, and then they were starting an international department and had a chance to, to join very early on. And through the course of that, had a chance to train and, and basically develop a lot of the international teams from Thailand, the UK, Malaysia. Um, and ultimately, they asked me to go to China to help open up their first eight locations in, in Beijing. Uh, and I wasn't sure exactly if I wanted to do it, but I knew it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, so I just I did it. Um, and it was a great experience, but it was really hard. This was China in 1998. Um, and I've always been someone, I think, who, who sought new and exciting opportunities that were essentially once-in-a-lifetime opportunities, like going to China. But then I also saw the internet boom start taking place as well. And uh, had a chance to go back to China, go to Shanghai, to another city to open up more stores. But saw that in the Bay Area, there's so many things that were going on that were so exciting related to the internet. Um, I knew nothing about it, but I wanted to be here. So through the course of an introduction and serendipity, got introduced to um, a, a co-founder who was looking for someone uh, to help with their marketing uh, for an internet-based startup. Uh, it was basically an online game rental site. So the, essentially Netflix. And we started just a little bit after Netflix. And of course, their business model took off. Uh, but online game rentals didn't really take off. 
um, but was at the startup for about seven years. And then through the course of the dot-com boom and bust, uh, we ended up pursuing other pathways within games, you know, pivoted, and eventually created a game called Guitar Hero, which was um, a really great experience. Um, but after seven years at a startup, very lean startup running, you know, full speed, I uh, wanted to do something different. And so um, through self-exploration, through um, meditation and practicing mindfulness, being present, I was it helped me get a better sense of what I really wanted to do. And through the course of exploring different things, I uh, got a master's in counseling psychology here at Santa Clara and uh, really discovered that I wanted to work with people um, individually. And through the course of my career, I realized I had helped mentor and train so many people and that's what really brought me joy and that's kind of the pathway that I took to get back here on campus working with students and alumni. Here's Megan Kress from the Career Center. Are there any common misconceptions that students have about getting a job or getting an internship that you see? A common misconception among among some is the internship you do is going to be the field that you remain in for the rest of your college years or even career. And that's certainly not the situation. You can use internships as a way to decide what you don't like to do, mm-hmm. right? Um, so if you do a few different internships, you decide maybe that field's not for you. That happened to me when mm-hmm. I was a student. I to segue to networking, which I was going to mm-hmm. talk about too as a misconception. Yeah. I was fortunate enough to have two dorm mates in SWIG who consecutive summers, their parents needed an intern in their different industries. And so I got to try out two different industries um, and dabble in both. And neither of those are anything I went into permanently, but I got to try it and see. And I was a benefit to them during the time that I worked with them. So I, I, I was a, an asset to them. I freed up their time to do some things that they needed to do. So, and then the, I guess the second common misconception that um, that I segued to in terms of networking was is that networking is this very formal business suit, shaking hands thing, but networking can be as simple as overhearing somebody at a coffee shop talking about some hiring needs on their team or at their company and turning around and introducing yourself or saying, gosh, I just heard you talking about hiring an intern for this summer and I'd actually been reading a lot of really cool things about your company. Would you be interested in having someone from Santa Clara apply, right? I can't tell you how many times those conversations turn into something real. Um, And so I tell students all the time, just look up from your phone when you're out and about. Because the easy thing to do is just to kind of overhear that happening and and just kind of, you know, stay on Snapchat or whatever. Um, But if you really kind of just pick up your head, you know, keep your ears open and, and start really talking to people, things happen. Things happen through people. So you have the power to make it happen for yourself or to just kind of passively let it go by. Here's 2018 graduate and women's basketball star, Taylor Berry. I'm curious, so you're your TED Talk was also kind of on, on this idea of genuine conversations. Yeah. So why are you so passionate about that? And maybe like what are some examples that you've seen in like your own life of why this has been important to you? No, yeah, totally. Um, I would like to say that I probably got passionate about um, this whole concept of genuine conversations and being the voice for the voiceless um, junior year in high school. Um, 
And I think I just was surrounded by um, a community that we really pushed each other out of our comfort zones. And that's when I realized that like, hey, as an athlete, as a person, as someone who has power and who's so many people have helped me get to the position, get in the position I am, to the place I am, um, that I had to go out there and do something. There was something I had, yeah, I had to go do something. I didn't know what I was going to do, but um, I reached out to the whole, I just love TED Talks, I'll be honest. Um, and it's funny because I look at TED Talks, it's like sometimes this isn't, isn't a knock on the teachers, but I could learn more from a TED Talk than going to class. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> we've all had those classes and nothing's wrong with that. It's just, you know. Um, and so when I saw that there was an opportunity for a TED Talk, I didn't know what I was going to write about yet. But I knew, like, okay, I at least want to try. Mm-hmm. And um, being the voice for the voiceless is something that has just, it's just been a reoccurring thought in my life. Mm-hmm. My parents have always been like, if you have the power to speak up for those who might not have such power, you need to do it. Mm-hmm. So when I was raised in an environment like that, it just shows the whole concept of why we need these conversations. And I also think it goes back to me and I talked about this in my TED Talk, it goes back to me just realizing that I did come from, I grew up in a place where there wasn't a lot of diversity, you know? Mm-hmm. And just trying to work out that, work with that and trying to find my own identity mm-hmm. while also trying to find my, I don't want to say my crew, but just mm-hmm. trying to figure out who my friends were. Mm-hmm. I think it just helped me realize that, look, we might look different on the outside, but we have so much more in common and that could only be seen through having genuine conversations. Here's Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship Executive Director Thane Kreiner. There's so many gigantic problems in the world from climate change to, to oceans, to poverty and inequality and human rights. Are you optimistic about the future? And if so, why? Mm. Um, That is a hard question. There are days when I'm very optimistic because I have seen and been in the field a lot with social enterprises. And I can see how um, community community level engagement can really create transformative change and how that can scale to address problems of climate change by creating resilience to it in the poor communities that are most affected. I've seen how um, fairly simple um, technologies like solar power lanterns can have multi-dimensional impacts on the quality of life and economically empower women who are most of the world's poor. Um, and this program we're doing with um, social enterprises focused on refugees, migrants, and human trafficking survivors has opened this whole new um, uh, way uh, uh, of seeing how entrepreneurship can serve the most vulnerable among our common human family. So I think the principles of, of social entrepreneurship hold enormous promise. At, at the same time, there are what I would say very um, troubling um, political wins that um, could completely destroy or devastate um, the planet, humanity, and, and everything else um, around us. So it's, a, it's a, a frightening time, I think is a fair thing to say in, in at least my history um, of, of being a human being. Mm-hmm. 
What are you most proud of in your career up to this point? I would probably say the Global Social Benefit Fellowship. Um, if, if I had to pick one thing, I'm proud of, of, of lots of things. Um, but when we imagined this program, with Keith, when Keith Warner and I started contemplating um, how we could create a transformative social justice learning experience, it was Memorial Day of 2011. We launched the program, a pilot program in 2012. And... You know, we learn. We've learned every year. We continue learning. But the what the program ha, has done in terms of offering these transformative experiences to high potential undergraduates is it's phenomenal. It's beyond what I imagined. I mean, we've had eight Fulbrights and three valedictorians come out of the fellowship, and I feel like all of the these young leaders are my children, right? So I, I'm now at like over 100, 100 children. And it's it's just phenomenal when I hear their stories. And, and I'm so proud of them. Um, and um, to think that, you know, this was an idea we, we scratched out on a few, you know, emails over Memorial Day weekend that long ago. It's, it's just, it's remarkable. We're going to wrap up this episode with some messages that my guests wanted you to hear. I would quote Camus Bell, shut up and listen. Listen to other people with different opinions. Really listen. Listen with the ears of the heart. Don't be judgmental, like Father Boyle says. Listen to the burdens that people carry to understand what they're struggling with. And then reflect in terms of how best to live. Hang in there, you know, it gets better. And I think we're going through just an incredible amount of change and change is just speeding up. It's really hard on us as humans, as communities, as institutions. We need to hang in there, be kinder to one another and, you know, keep, um, keep being optimistic. Um, we have an amazing, um, group of young people coming in behind us that are doing great things and so I'm hopeful. Think about more ways you can give. Be nice and be kind because we are more alike than we are different. That's a tough one. I think I would probably just want everyone to find a little bit more peace. I think we're at a, a really rough point in this country. So just telling everyone to find a little more peace in their life, I think, would be what I would want to tell everyone across the country. I think it would just go on to this whole idea of, like, genuine conversations, and it would just be, I know it's uncomfortable, and I know you could get nervous sometimes, but get out of your little box and go have a conversation with someone. Because... In this world, we just need kindness. Like We need more kindness. Be kind. Go have a conversation with someone you typically wouldn't speak to. Take that risk, and you might see that you have more in common. And it, guess what? It won't be as scary once you're in it. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. And for listening this whole year, go ahead and share with a couple friends. Check out VoicesOfSantaClara.com or go like the Facebook page. And stay tuned for updates in the new year. Happy New Year and see you later.